Our scripture reading is from John 3, verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, You are a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Just before we turn to the word this morning, let's look to God again in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you that you are always with us and that we can look to you in all of the circumstances in which we find ourselves in this life and know that your promise is sure, your name is I am, and you will be there. Father, we pray that you'd be present with us for the rest of this service as you have been so far, and that, Father, as we turn our hearts to your word, you would send your spirit to illuminate our minds, to open our hearts, and to work in us, Lord, what is pleasing in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning in our series on the Gospel of John, we've come to chapter 3, which everyone knows a verse from John chapter 3. Most of us have it memorized. John 3 is home to one of the most used and abused passages in all of Scripture, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The thing is that contrary to what we might expect based on the fact that this verse is just ubiquitous, especially in North America and European culture, there is a context that goes with that. Peter read part of it for us just a few moments ago, verses 1 through 15 of John chapter 3. But the verses that come after John 3.16 are a part of that context too. So I want to begin in verse 16 and read through verse 18. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So right off the bat this morning, then, it's very clear to us, or it should be, that any attempt to turn John 3.16 into kind of a universalistic text, a text that teaches that because God loved the world so much, then all people will inevitably be saved, is at the very best misguided. Yes, absolutely. God loved the world. We'll consider that further in just a bit. And yes, the Son did not come to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. But John also makes it very clear, or Jesus, who is speaking in this text, makes it very clear that this salvation comes to those who believe. We read in verses 14 and 15, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And even the first part of verse 18, which is up on the screen, whoever believes in him is not condemned. And all of this only highlights the importance of John's purpose in writing this letter. We've looked at it several times already in the series, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This faith, this believing, this trusting, which this book is pushing us toward, is especially important, considering that the end of verse 18 tells us that not only does salvation come to those who believe, they are not condemned, salvation comes only to those who believe. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, those are hard words. And we read just a couple of verses before that, the Son did not come into the world to condemn the world. Some people take that to mean, well, then nobody's going to be condemned. But that's not what John is saying or what Jesus is saying here in the Gospel of John. He's saying, basically, the Son didn't come to condemn the world because the world already stood condemned and under the wrath of God because of the fall of man and because of the sin that's so ubiquitous in our lives. So Jesus came to save his people. He came to deliver us from the condemnation that was already ours by right. He doesn't have to condemn. That's already been done. And this is a matter of eternal importance whether or not a person truly believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, will finally determine whether that person is not condemned or condemned. There's no middle ground. There's no wiggle room. This is both the context and it's the point of this story. 
John chapter 3, verse 1 is where we kind of dive in today. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And just in case we're tempted to think that this is kind of a a new beginning, that this has nothing to do with what happened in chapter 2, remember that at the end of chapter 2, Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he drove out of the temple the money changers and the livestock traders. That was, of course, more than a little distressing to those who had a financial stake in the enterprise, and that included the rulers of the Jews. The court of the Gentiles had come to be known as Caiaphas Market. It was a place of business. It was no longer open for the Gentiles to come and worship God in the temple. So the chief priests and the Pharisees and the rulers of the Jews were all making money off of this enterprise that Jesus broke up when he drove these people away. It was the rulers of the Jews who questioned him about his authority to do what he did. But Jesus had already answered the question before it was asked, saying in chapter 2, verse 16, take these things away, these animals and these tables and the coins, just take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, as Christians, we're used to that kind of language about God. We often pray, our Father, who art in heaven, we think of God and we speak to him as our Father. But to understand how this resonated with the rulers of the Jews, consider John chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. We'll come to it eventually. But just a brief glimpse ahead. Jesus said there, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So he called God his father, and he said, My father is busy doing things in this world, and I am busy doing things with him. And verse 18 says, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which, by the way, he was not, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. When Jesus said, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade, he was doing the same thing. And maybe they weren't quite sure exactly what he meant by that yet, but it was not something that was done. And the rulers of the Jews understood, this is a problem. This guy is going to cause us trouble. Back in chapter 2, he said that, and to the scribes, Pharisees, priests, and rulers of the people, people like Nicodemus, it was already a blasphemous declaration. This man, as they perceived him to be, this rabbi, was making himself equal with God by claiming God as his father. And even though there were many people, we were told in John chapter 2, who believed because of the signs that they saw him doing, the rulers would not and could not accept that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. That's the most likely reason for Nicodemus to approach him by night. For Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, to come to Jesus under the bright light of the sun was just not something that was going to happen. He was an elite among other elites. And for him to even entertain the possibility that Jesus was truly the Son of God, as John the Baptist had claimed, when the Pharisees sent people out to ask him what he was doing, that would have cost Nicodemus everything. 
would have cost him his status, it would have cost him his reputation, it would have probably cost him his living. But in the prologue to this gospel, John wrote of Jesus, the eternal word, that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He went on to point out that the light shone in darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. And I think what we see happening here with Nicodemus is he's being drawn to that light. He comes in the darkness because he wants to keep it secret. He doesn't want to be seen, but he's drawn to the light of life. Still, he doesn't understand. Look at what he said in John chapter 3, verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In other words, rabbi, which according to John 1 verse 38 means teacher, a term which was applied to both Jesus and John the Baptist and which Jesus himself will apply to Nicodemus, we know that you're special. You're just a teacher, though. You've, you've come from God, but, but you're still just a teacher. And that, of course, was to say we know that you are remarkable. We know that there's something different about you. But Nicodemus doesn't come to Jesus as a believer. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And that's exactly what Nicodemus was trying to do. He's trying to navigate these rough seas between the truth that Jesus was and is God and the only somewhat less difficult proposition, at least for Nicodemus, that Jesus was actually a great moral teacher. It's kind of hard for Nicodemus. He was considered himself to be the teacher of Israel. And so he comes and he throws out this compliment. But Jesus, knowing himself what was in man, as it said in chapter 2, verse 25, is not going to let him off so easily. Immediately, he responded to Nicodemus' statement, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, lots of assumptions have been made about this statement, most of them with very, very little consideration of the context in which it was spoken. But think about what this meant to Nicodemus, a man who in his own mind had just paid Jesus, a fellow teacher, this enormous compliment, acknowledging that he had come from God and that God was with him. And Jesus just ignores that. He disregards the compliment entirely, and he says, you're missing the point, Nicodemus. You're completely missing the point, because until you've been born again, or born from above, or some combination of the two, the Greek word is a little bit ambiguous, you can't see what's right here in front of your face. And whether or not we understand this, Nicodemus, for his part, knew that when Jesus made that statement, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, he was speaking directly to Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus replies, how can a man be born when he was old? You see, he applies it to himself immediately. Nicodemus would have been 
an old man. It's kind of an interesting thought, and one that certainly doesn't really matter very much. But this is only about 18 years after Jesus, at the age of 12, stayed behind at the temple to impress the leaders, the priests and the teachers, the rabbis who were there in the temple. It is at least possible, based on Nicodemus' status as the teacher of Israel, that he would have been there 18 years before, that this isn't the first time that he's encountered this remarkable young man from his perspective. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. Nicodemus replies, well, how can I be born when I'm old? Can an old man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? The aged teacher understood that Jesus was talking to him, but he, he just couldn't grasp what was being said. He didn't understand it. And that's one reason why I say this is so often considered outside of this context, because this text gets thrown around a lot. And these very simplistic sorts of interpretations are put onto it. You must be born again. But if the teacher of Israel in Jesus' day couldn't grasp what Jesus was saying, it's probably not meant to be taken in a simplistic way. So Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So having highlighted the need to be born from above or born again, as I said, it's a single Greek word and it can be translated either way. Nicodemus seems to have understood it to mean born again. Jesus went on to say, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And in the very next verse, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? What are you talking about? I, this, I, this does not make sense. And maybe we're confused too. Are we supposed to be born again? or born from above, or are we supposed to be born of the Spirit? And the answer to that is yes, all of the above. But while whole sermons could be preached and books could be written on the subtleties inherent in these phrases, the one thing we should not miss this morning is the very obvious. To see the kingdom of God, to recognize Jesus for who he truly is, the Christ, the Son of God. In fact, the Word made flesh. We have to be born in some way other than just mere physical birth. Being a Christian isn't just a matter of being alive on the planet and having a brain that can comprehend some intellectual truth that has been laid out for us. Nicodemus was alive and well, evidently, and living on planet Earth. And to be the teacher of Israel, he must have been incredibly intelligent. This is a man to whom a whole nation looked for theological interpretation, but that wasn't enough. He had to be born of the Spirit. 
He had to be born from above. He had to be born again. Something which was completely different from physical birth. But something which, like physical birth, Nicodemus could not cause or control. That's why Jesus goes into this illustration about the wind. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. We experience the wind. The wind has its effects on us. I remember back in the good old days when it used to kind of blow my hair. I don't have that problem anymore. But the wind blows, and we experience the effects of the wind, but we don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. We are not in control of the origin, and we are not in control of the outcome. And Jesus says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Born of the Spirit, born again, born from above, whichever focus we want to bring to it, they are all there in this passage. And no wonder Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus, seeing that Nicodemus was now primed and just ready to go, saith unto him, well, let me explain. See, God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Except he didn't. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? The teacher of Israel. And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Apparently Jesus hadn't read either the four spiritual laws or those church growth books about the attractional model. Or he might have been a little bit easier on Nicodemus' ego at this point. Nicodemus says, I don't understand. And Jesus says, no, you really don't. And instead, verse 13 to 18, bring us back to where I began this morning. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man. Remember, Nicodemus? We speak of what we know. Jesus is saying we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, I am not a great teacher who came from God in some vague sense, like we might use the term godsend. Oh, that was, that was a real godsend. He's saying, that's not what's happening here at all. I literally descended from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's a very biblical title for the Messiah, the Christ, that whoever believes in him may have eter eternal life. Now, the illustration would not have been lost on the teacher of Israel. We're vaguely aware We've probably heard some Sunday school lesson or other about the serpent on the stick in the wilderness. Nicodemus would have known that story inside out. He would have had it memorized. 
and it would not have missed him that the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness saved the lives of those who trusted the word that God spoke on that occasion. Everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And now Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man, descended from heaven, and the source of eternal salvation for those who would trust in him. And just in case Nicodemus did miss this first point, Jesus went on. He says in verse 15 that whoever believes in him, the Son of Man, may have eternal life. He goes on in verse 16, as we know, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now that word, only Son, it is one word in the original manuscripts, it's monogeneo, and it means only begotten. It's probably a better translation, even though it comes from the older, more traditional ones. The idea is what we get in the Nicene Creed, of the same essence as. When Jesus says, God gave his only begotten, his monogeneo son, he's saying this son is not merely a man. He's not a human being who's going to be indwelled with the Holy Spirit at some point in his life or something like that. He is actually God taking on human flesh and coming into this world. And that's how God loved the world. And he did it so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you detect a theme here? Point number one in Jesus' little sermon to Nicodemus, verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Point number two, verse 16, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Point number three, verses 17 and 18, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Three times in just a few short verses. It's almost like there's a message here. And there is. For God so loved the world. Now literally, hutos. God loved the world thus. God loved the world in this way. The adverb so, even in English, never mind in Greek, is not a quantifier. So when John 3.16 says that God so loved the world, it's not saying God loved the world so much that there aren't even words to express it. Because I love you so much, it's really an incomplete sentence. When a child or a young person approaches his mother and says, oh, I just love you so much, most moms probably think, hmm, what they do. And then they think, that's really nice. But what? I love you so much, what? It's an incomplete sentence. Mom, I love you so much that I will do the dishes every night this week without even being asked. That's a complete sentence. Dad, I love you so much, I will clean out the garage this weekend instead of playing video games. That's a complete sentence. 
And God so loved the world, he loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son. In other words, God did not love by sitting in heaven after the fall of man and clinging to his warm, fuzzy feelings about the fallen world and sinners in general. As in Romans 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us in this. God demonstrates his love for us in this. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or 1 John 4, verse 10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We tend to think of love in emotional terms, and, and that's okay, but only up to a point. When we talk about the love of God for his cosmos, the world that he made, we're not talking about an emotion or a passion. We're talking about what motivated God to do what he did, and what he did was to send his only begotten son. He wasn't there sitting there thinking warm thoughts about sinners. He was sending his only begotten son to redeem them. This is how God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order, in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the gospel. This is the good news. But it comes with a caveat. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Hallelujah. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's not enough to come under cover of darkness as Nicodemus did to a teacher come from God, a great moral teacher. C.S. Lewis said it so well. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That, says Lewis, is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, which is the only response of true faith. Rabbi, as Philip said in our last week, you are the king of Israel. You are the Messiah. Thomas, my Lord and my God. Peter, confessing you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The response of faith is not, there is some guy named Jesus who lived a long time ago and I think he might have been a pretty nice guy. The response of faith 
is to fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Just one more thing. It is often said that we should hate the sin and love the sinner, and that is absolutely true. But we have to love the sinner the way that God loved the sinner. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If we are going to love sinners the way that God loved sinners, then it is up to us to proclaim life in Jesus' name. To proclaim that it is only through him and through faith in him that we may have salvation. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. May we pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your son, that unspeakable gift, unimaginable gift, that you would give him for us and for our salvation is beyond our capacity to believe. Even so, you sent your Holy Spirit, that wind that blows. We don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but Father, through your Spirit, you create faith and you create repentance in your people. And Lord, we turn to you and we find in you the comfort that we need in this life and for all eternity. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.